Uh, and I would agree uh, that with the Ukraine crisis, we've ushered in a new era in U.S.-Russian relations. All the hopes and assumptions that we had made 20 years ago about the inevitable, albeit slow, integration of Russia into the Western world have been upended in the past year, year and a half. That's Thomas Graham, a presenter at the 2015 Camden Conference, speaking on rethinking U.S.-Russia relations. You can hear his full presentation, as well as a presentation on Russia, Lost in Transition, by Fyodor Lakhanov of Moscow on Tuesday, March 24th at 4 p.m., right here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, in Blue Hill at 89.9, in Bangor at 99.9, and all the way to Moscow and beyond at WERU.org. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits to strengthen Maine's economy by focusing on education, leadership, and quality of place. On the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock here at WERU, and it is definitely time for WERU's Coastal Conversations. Explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. <clears throat> coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is Seal and Whale Strandings in Maine, why they happen, and why we respond. Our guest today, we have some great folks in the studio with us today who know a whole lot about marine mammals in the Gulf of Maine. We have Sean Todd, who is the, direct, the director of Allied Whale at College of the Atlantic and also the Steve Katona Chair in Marine Science at College of the Atlantic. We have Rosie Seaton, who is the Marine Mammal Stranding Coordinator and a research, research associate at Allied Whale at College of the Atlantic. And later on the phone, we'll have Dr. Carissa, help me out, Rosie, how do you say her last name? Balamowitz. Balamowitz, who's a veterinarian at Harbor Road Ve uh, Veterinary in South Thomaston, and she's been working on stranding issues for a while. And then we'll have a student volunteer, Grace Shears, um, who is engaged in helping out with some of these projects too. Before we run into run uh, jump into strandings, Sean, tell us a little bit about Allied Whale. You're the director. What what is Allied Whale? Well, uh, good morning, Natalie. Uh, first of all, and thanks, good morning. Thanks very much for having us here. Um, really excited to talk about uh, what we do at the college and uh, give the folks out there an idea of, of of what that mysterious place in Bar Harbor is and what we do. Um, Allied Whale is uh, is a strange name for a, uh, a marine mammal research group. Um, you know, if you've been in the business long enough, you'll know that there are all kinds of institutes out there. They all use combinations of whale, cetacean, marine, mammal, group, program. Uh, so Allied Whale is a pretty unique name. Um, it comes from this idea that back in the 70s when it started, we were thinking about ways that we wanted to connect our group to other groups and thus be allies in our quest to conserve these animals. So that's, that's where the name comes from. Um, I direct this program. Uh, I think director is a bit of a strong word. I think one of the first things you learn when you come to the college is uh, it's a very flat organization in terms of uh, hierarchy. So um, probably conductor would be a better word for my job. Um, I have an amazing orchestra uh, of students and researchers who are all very, very good at what they do. And my job is really just to coordinate what they do. And so there are many programs within Allied Whale, but one of them is the Stranding Program. And it runs because of the efforts of the people uh, and the volunteers 
to help it run, principally students and staff at the college. And Allied Whale is part of College of the Atlantic? That is correct. We are, we are a program of the college. Um, we are almost as old as the college is, actually, and I think for the longest time we were probably responsible for the, the college having somewhat of a reputation as being a whale school. Of course, the college does so much more than that, uh, and we have many, many diverse and rich programs. Um, but we are still known within the undergraduate and graduate world as a place to come to if you want to study marine mammals. Great. Thanks. And Rosie, hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what Allied Whale does. It's multifaceted. Um, Allied Whale, I guess the hallmark really of Allied Whale has been our humpback and fin whale photo ID catalogs. Um, We house several catalogs, including the North Atlantic Humpback Whale Catalog, um, the Antarctic Humpback Whale Catalog, which may sound strange since we're a little bit distant from Antarctica. Uh, We also house the North Atlantic Fin Whale Catalog. so we, we work a lot with uh, looking at these populations, um, certainly within the Gulf of Maine and beyond. Um, other research work, um, uh, a lot of bioacoustics. Uh, we have had numerous students uh, work with Sean uh, as their director, um, doing projects, certainly for their senior projects, and I've actually gone on to graduate school, several have, continuing on in, in doing bioacoustic work. And, and among the many things that you do, uh, you are the coordinator of the Marine Mammal Stranding Program, correct? That's correct, yeah. Marine mammals and actually sea turtles and as well. And sea turtles. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So um, tell us what stranding means. Strandings, well, it, it's basically for a marine mammal being out of habitat. Um, if you see a whale on a beach... That's definitely not right. And, and it's easier with cetaceans or whales, dolphins, and porpoises, which are what cetaceans are. Um, and that's more clear cut for people to see a dolphin on a beach or a whale and so on. Um, what's not so clear cut is when we look at seals. Uh, seal species are different from whales in that, yes, they're marine mammals, but they're semi-aquatic. In other words, they spend part of their time in the water, part of their time, and a good part of their time out of the water. That's important for them. So when you see a single seal on the beach, or maybe a pair, or or so on, um, especially the singles, though, that throws people, and they feel that they should be in the water. Um, But many times, that's just normal behavior. Yeah, and I look forward to talking a little bit about what to do and not do. There's probably a Absolutely. lot of not do's. Um, but you've mentioned some some seals, some dolphins, some porpoises. Sean, what, tell us a little bit about the, um, the diversity of marine mammals on the coast of Maine. What are we likely to see either from shore or on a whale watch trip, um, maybe different seasons? Is it different in the winter than the summer? Right. So, so let me begin by saying... When you listen to my voice, you could probably guess I'm not from here. I'm, I, am, I am from away, as they would say down east. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I remember growing up looking out the ocean, just desperately wishing to see one whale. Just even I would settle for a porpoise or a seal. And uh, we didn't really have them. Uh, and I, I say that just to bring out the fact that the Gulf of Maine is an extraordinary area. Uh, I've been very lucky to work in different places in the world. And, of course, my work tends to take me to places where they're marine mammals. But um, in general, marine mammals aren't found in the concentrations that we find them here in the Gulf. And the reason for that is, is the Gulf is biologically very productive. The oceanography of the Gulf is perfect uh, to create the, 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 the food base that these marine mammals feed on. So uh, you can divide uh, the marine mammals into the two groups, as we've done already, the cetaceans, which are the whales and dolphins of porpoise, and then the pinnipeds, which are the seals. Um, pinnipeds are actually quite a diverse group. We only have seals here on this coast. Uh, sea lions and walrus are in other places. If you had a walrus here, it would be very, very lost. Um, just, we used to have them back in the old days, but not, not anymore. And who knows, with the opening of the Northwest Passage, maybe they'll come back again. We'll see. Uh, but for now, we just have seals. And the seal species that we get here, there are four main ones that you can see, uh, see depending on the time of year. Harbor seals uh, live here year-round, as do greys, uh, although they may be a little bit more offshore during the wintertime. During the, um, the springtime, they are much more common, and in fact, uh, Maine is a known pupping area for harbor seals. So we often see, if you see a pup in the area, it's often a harbor seal pup. Uh, during the wintertime, we have what we call the ice seals, which are the harp and the hooded seals, 
And uh, again, the harp seals are coming down here because although they're ice adapted, um, the population is quite successful and it's expanding and they're, they're moving further south into, into warmer areas. And the, um, the hooded seal sort of comes with that as well. So uh, we have those four species, uh, although by far the most common sighting you would see year-round is probably the harbor. And I see Rosie sort of kind of shaking her head maybe. Mm. Possibly, yes. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the harbors are probably the most common. And now in the cetaceans area, the, the small, the smaller... The small, smallest cetacean we get is the harbor porpoise, and they're very common. Uh, you often see them out in the bay um, pretty much year-round. During the summertime, we'll have the dolphins move in, so we have common dolphins here, uh, which are pretty common, and also uh, white-sided dolphin. And then moving up to the larger animals, pilot whales. Uh, we get the odd killer whale sighting, believe it or not, although it tends to be more offshore. Uh, and then um, a smattering of other rarer dolphin species like uh, the Grampus, uh, Risso's dolphin. And then up to the whales, of course, where we have the humpback and the fin and the minke. Um, so, you know, I, I guess just in that past five minutes, I've probably mentioned, you know, maybe 10, 12, 14 different species that we get here. It's a very wonderfully biodiverse area. And the reason they're here is principally because of food. And what makes this region... Um so full of food for them. What's unique about the Gulf of Maine that way? So it's um, a very common and totally reasonable misperception uh, that people tend to think of warm water as being a good thing for productivity. You know, you, you remember those, those shows of old where you see Jacques Cousteau diving on those <laughs> beautiful reefs down there and, you know, he's giving this wonderful sort of French commentary about how wonderfully diverse the reefs are. And they are. But they're, in terms of biomass, very little. In fact, warm waters tend to be nutrient-starved. We have relatively cold water here in the Gulf. It's fed in but, uh, through, from the Arctic by a current called the Labrador Current. It's very nutrient-rich. So that feeds the base of the food chain. Essentially, the way to think about this would be that, you know, if you want to grow roses in soil, you have to put nutrients into the soil. You have to fertilize. And so our water has plenty of natural fertilizer that helps the plant plankton, what we call the phytoplankton, grow, and that's the base of the food chain upon which everything else is based. And then added to that is a very, very dynamic vertical mixing system, which is partly driven by tides and partly driven by the shape of the ocean floor. All those things create what we call upwellings, which bring the nutrients to the surface where they meet light, and then the plants start to grow. So it's an extraordinary, um, extraordinarily productive area. And it's, you know, we, we know this because historically, you know, the Gulf of Maine was a great place to fish. You know, we had the, we had the, uh, the George's Mac fishery for, for centuries. We also had the Grand Banks fishery, which is not so far from here, maybe just a few, you know, 100 miles north of us. Uh, and um, it, it's all because this is an incredibly nutrient-rich area. So we have this incredible nutrient-rich area, um, and I'm sure many of our listeners have had some experiences where they've seen some of the animals that Sean has talked about. We're going to zero in on the topic of the day, which is why do some of these animals find themselves on the beach, either dead or alive? Um, Why does that happen? Let's start maybe, Rosie, with um, why does that happen with whales? Well, whale strandings, uh, whales, dolphins, porpoises, uh, you can get single strandings of animals and you can get what are called mass strandings. And they're kind of two different beasts. Um, The single strandings you'll find, um, whether the baleen whales, which are like your fin and the humpback and so on, they have baleen in their mouth, not toothed whales. So there's those two different groups of whales. Um, Toothed whales are the ones that you'll, if you hear about a mass stranding on Cape Cod, for example, they'll always be toothed whales because of the cohesive unit or pod that they're in, this social unit. So sort of if one goes in, they all go in. Um, So it can can vary. Why do they strand? Sort of the big answer is we don't know, but there are a lot of theories. And I I think there's never one answer. Uh, Certainly if an animal is sick, I, I had a common dolphin go up a creek it was alive. Common dolphins are found offshore, not inshore. So number one, that's bad. And it was alone. And it was. It was a sick animal. It had come in. And it was just probably trying to find a little substrate or some shoreline to rest on, if you will. Uh, so certainly injury or illness uh, can be a reason that these animals will end up on, on a beach or, or in up, uh, coastally up rivers. Um, but then there are other reasons too. It could be for the mass strandings, 
theories include, uh, for example, coming into Cape Cod Bay, which is a real hot spot in the world for mass strandings, um, possibly the bathymetry or sort of the under the shoreline is sort of throws off these offshore dolphins. They're not, fam it's, it's being lost, if you will, and ending up on shore. And uh, with um, the marshlands, the tidal uh, tides going out, they really get um, truly lost up there. Um, yeah, it, it, go ahead, John. Yeah. I think it's important to just emphasize what Rosie just said that there is no one cause. Uh, you know, and, and death comes to us all. That's a profound statement. So, um, you know, uh, these are wild animals, and um, some die completely naturally. And if, if an animal dies naturally and happens to wash up on shore, that's still a stranding. And there's nothing, there's nothing mystical about that. It's just a natural death. Um, of course, we live in a society that has chosen to value marine mammals and created laws around them so that we still have to respond to that stranding and investigate it, even though the death might be completely natural. It is also true that there are strandings out there that are absolutely undeniably caused by humans. Um, so, you know, our job is to really visit every single one of those strandings that we can in Maine and try to figure out what the cause of death is, because if it is human-related, then that's a concern because there are laws that protect the animals, and we have to think about what are the practices that are causing that stranding to happen. Um, however, I, I'm, you know, having done this for a very long time, as has Rosie, uh, I, I'm sure that a majority of the animals that we see are animals that just die, and for whatever reason, they're buoyant enough to reach a beach, and they end up stranded on the beach. And so you mentioned that um, you are required to respond. What's the, what's the regulation around responding to the strandings? Uh, so, again, you know, we live in a, we live in a particular kind of society, and I, I say that because there are societies out there that don't do this. Um, for example, if you were to go to Canada, they don't really have the same framework or policy to look at marine mammal strandings that we do. Um, in 1972, we passed the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which I'll abbreviate just to MMPA. And, you know, that, that act was very clear that we placed value on these animals and we were interested in their conservation. Um, that act has been reauthorized several times. And in the 1990s, when it was reauthorized, they came up with a program that was called the Marine Mammal Stranding Response and or Marine Mammal Health, Health and Stranding Response Program, right? Uh, and that that sent a very clear mandate to NOAA, the uh, the National Oceanic and uh, Atmospheric Administration. Um, that is the federal body that's in charge of management of marine resources in this country. Um, sent a very clear mandate to them saying, we need to do better with strandings. We need to organize a network that allows us to respond to them. And actually, the, 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 the wording in the Act itself speaks principally from the point of view of data, which is really, really interesting because, you know, the, the Act is saying we need to respond to strains because we need to know more about them. We need to maximize the science that we can gain from them. It's not actually from the point of view of welfare, which is actually the reason that many of us get into the business because we see these animals suffering and we care and we don't want it to happen. But the reason why NOAA does it is principally for data. So that sets up that act. Um, <clears throat> people think of NOAA as being this huge group, and it, and it is pretty big. Uh, but if you, say, go, to, um, to go down to Massachusetts and, uh, and you look at the, the office that governs, uh, supervises strandings for our region, the Northeast region, there's only four people in that office. So there are four people in the office to cover all strandings from the Canadian border down to Virginia. And, of course, they can't do that. So what they've done beyond that is they've set up a network. And so we are part of that network. We receive permission. We actually have a license, if you will, a permit to respond on their behalf to strandings. Uh, so that's why we do this. We do this on behalf of NOAA. Um, NOAA, we work hand in hand with NOAA to develop protocols and best practices. And if there are data that come from a stranding, that data is then forwarded to NOAA and, the, and they, they archive it. And so I'm walking on the beach. It's a cold February day, and I come upon a lonely seal by itself on the beach. I don't know what to do, but I have heard that I should call Allied Whale, and I will probably land on Rosie, 
who, um, what, what happens then? So you get a phone call from a concerned citizen in the middle of the winter who has seen a marine mammal on the shore, say a seal. When we get a call, uh, we try and collect as much information as we can, including who the caller is and a phone number, in case we lose contact with them, because often they are right on the beach on a cell phone. Um, we uh, get information about where they are, the location. Um, also, getting them to, where are you in conjunction to the animal? Are you right with it, or are you back at home? Um, if you're right there, make sure that they are standing well back. Uh, it's really important to give marine mammals, uh, of course, in this case, seals on the beach, um, their distance. So 150 feet is something good to go by. Uh, so stand back because you stress them out. You shouldn't be changing their behavior. If you walk up closely and it ra the seal raises its head or starts to move off, you've crossed that invisible line of comfort for the animal. So back off. Um, I know not everyone carries binoculars with them, but if uh, later on we've asked you to help monitor, uh, binoculars are a good way to observe from a distance. Um, we will ask if you've taken photos of the animal. The photos are incredibly important to us because at least we can begin saying, okay, we've got this kind of species and this kind of age class. We could even begin to look at even body condition, uh, possible injuries. Granted, we, we don't go always get photos of the whole body, but uh, just some initial photos are great. Uh, and I realize that means going a little close to the animal, but if we ask you just to get a photo and then back off. But basically keeping your distance from the animal uh, seals can harbor diseases, which are can be transferred to humans and to pets. So if you're on the shore with your pet, and I get numerous calls where people say, I would have never seen that seal on the beach if it weren't for my dog, because the dog has found it. So keep pets away, keep people away. That's the first good thing to do. So you're helping the seal out that way by not stressing it out. You're just an alien to that seal. Um, so just telling us where that animal is, when you first observed it, maybe you just saw it in your walk that morning, maybe you saw it yesterday, but when we get a call, it's good to get it as soon as we can because then we can monitor that animal. In other words, we get a baseline and, and it might simply be a sighting. We get many sightings and that's okay. I've often had people say, um, gee, the seal was gone later. You were right, it was just a false alarm. And it's like, no, 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 it's never a false alarm. Sightings are good. It's important for us to keep tabs on what kinds of animals that we do have around. Um, so don't, don't feel that you shouldn't phone because it, it looks healthy and bright and happy. Um, it gives us a baseline because sometimes these animals may look great at the beginning and then they start to go downhill. Um, and then then you have a stranding situation where we need to intervene. And in terms of calling, I know that there's a hotline, which I happen to have right in front of me. If anybody wants to participate in sharing information of what you're seeing on the shore, the stranding hotline number where you will probably land on Rosie or some of her volunteer helpers is 1-800-532-9551. That's 1-800-532-9551. That's the stranding hotline. And that's actually for the state of Maine. Uh, Allied Whale at COA looks after Rockland, north to the Canadian border, and our colleagues, our good colleagues at the Marine Mammals of Maine, look after Rockland, south to New Hampshire. So by calling that hotline number, it will uh, guide you to the right institution. Great, great, thank you. So then, um, if you determine that there needs to be some sort of an intervention, and, and I'm looking forward to talking to our vet shortly here, help, hopefully if we can connect with her, um, what, what, do you, what does that look like, actually responding to a stranding? And just for our listeners, just so you know, we're, we're going to connect with the consulting vet, and we're also hoping to connect with um, an active student volunteer who's been, both of these folks are on the front lines with Rosie um, responding. Um. One thing I, I need to point out, while, you know, Sean mentioned how we have all these stranding networks and we're part of the Northeast region, well, even within our region of Rockland to Canada, we have our own network of volunteers. Um, so if I get a call and I find, uh, I, in fact, I just had a harp seal call the other day from Machiasport, and uh, we have some of our volunteers up there, uh, at the University of Maine Machias, in fact. We have Dr. Gail Krauss and her students went out to check on the seal, and actually they found it was gone. It was just a sighting of the seal. 
But I had photos, so I knew what kind it was. I knew it was in, looked in good shape, so it appeared to have been a harp seal seating, uh, sighting. Um, so thanks to our volunteers that help us out. And I also want to say uh, a shout-out and kudos to local citizens. Um, they help us in monitoring these animals. They learn the rules, if you will, about keeping away, observing with binoculars, but letting us know if the animal is there or not. And that can help us enormously. And we often uh, end up roping them in as volunteers in the end. So we really love working with all the citizens in the coastal communities. That's great. I believe that we have Dr. Carissa Balamowitz. Did I say that right? Great. Dr. B will call you for short, so I don't mess up your name. Thanks for joining our call. Thank you. Um, so you are a consulting vet for Allied Whale, um, and you help from the veterinary perspective. But first, tell us a little bit about what you do as a vet and where your practice is. Um, I actually practice down in South Thomaston, uh, down in the Midcoast region, um, where generally on a day-to-day basis I see mostly cats and dogs, um, the occasional ferret, the occasional horse. Um, or sheep or goat or anything else that happens to come through our doors, even if it is a seal. That's great. And I know that dogs are closely related biologically to to seals, so there's a good biological connection there. Mm -hmm, Um, They are. They're actually called sea dogs. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in um, doing some work with allied whale and marine mammal strandings. Um, I used to come up here as a child before I moved here about 12 years ago and um, was very familiar with College of the Atlantic and the work that they did. Um, And about six or seven years ago, I walked into the Allied Whale office and was asking if there were any volunteer opportunities because I love our coastline and the life within it, and uh, met Rosie, and she asked if I wanted to assist with the stranding team, Um, and that seemed like a great way to be able to be involved um, with the veterinary background. What, what do you, so what do you see in these animals? What, what are some, some of the things that you've seen over the years when you respond to a stranding? Well, Sean was mentioning um, human interactions versus natural diseases or natural causes, and uh, we see a variety of both. Um, there is definitely a bit of CSI work involved in some cases, trying to determine whether or not it is a natural cause um, or if an injury was caused by a human interaction. Um, certainly disease processes, um, and you approach trying to determine what has happened to the animal in a very similar manner that you would to a dog or a cat. Um, The physical exam and the physical assessment um, is the same, whether it is a dog, a cat, a giraffe, or a seal. Interesting. And and so are the diseases the same? There are some that are. Um, For example, distemper, leptospirosis, rabies, Um, Any one of these diseases could occur in a dog um, or in a seal. And that is one of the reasons why we stress um, to keep your pet away, and that's for the safety of both species. Um, And also for your safety, uh, there are also zoonotic diseases. So there are a few diseases that can be transferred from a human to a seal and vice versa, Uh, leptospirosis being one of them. And how do you figure it out? How do you do that detective work on a stranded seal? Well, I would say um, it's very much using your powers of observation, uh-huh. um, and that's for all the volunteers um, or myself or Rosie or whomever responds to a stranding. Um, we kind of tend to go from a, a broad view uh, to a more narrow view, and so your, your observation starts the moment that you step out of your car um, and get to the location. Um, so you're looking at whether or not the animal is, for example, near a boat launch where there's going to be a lot of human activity or if it's on an isolated beach. Um, We look at the substrate. Is the animal on stone or is it on sand? Um, And then from there, as you get closer, um, you'll start to look at whether or not the animal's moving, if there are obvious wounds, um, if there's nasal discharge or an ocular discharge, um, how stressed the animal looks when it's left alone um, as opposed to when you approach. And then as you get closer and closer, um, you may get to the point where um, you're actually physically touching the animal if you're a volunteer with the team. Um, and then, of course, you're going to wear gloves. Um, but as you approach that animal, you can then do things like uh, assessing a heart rate or a respiratory rate or looking more closely at a wound. Wow, that must be really fascinating work when you're out there um, taking really the heartbeat is. of a seal. What are some of the unique things that you've seen over the years? Um, we've seen uh, everything from parasites to um, on uh, cases where we've actually done necropsies at back at the college. Um, you'll see tell, some really tell us interesting... What a, tell us what a necropsy is. A necropsy 
necropsy is essentially an animal autopsy. So for a human, we would call it an autopsy. Um, but it's the same type of process. So you're taking a recently, hopefully recently deceased animal because um, you get the most information from a more recently deceased. Um, and essentially going in there as a biologist or as a doctor or as a student and really trying to, to read the story of what happened to the animal. So you're able to go internally um, and look at all the organs um, and look at how they appear um, from just from your naked eye. Um, you can also collect samples, which can then go to a lab um, and can be assessed for different types of diseases or things that you could only see on a cellular level. It's really a fascinating process. And then it, it must be sort of a process of elimination to try to figure out what you're dealing with in terms of disease or injury. Absolutely. And I think what's important to realize is that we're not always going to have an answer. Mm. Um, it unfortunately is not wrapped up <laughs> like a CSI case in an hour. Um, <laughs> but it really is informative no matter what the situation is. Any information that you get is informative and it adds, if nothing else, it adds to your knowledge bank to the next time that you see an animal. Um, and so you can go back and remember um, different pathology that you had seen in other cases. Um, and then there are situations where those samples, when they come back from the lab, will give you a lot of information um, and may give you a diagnosis that perhaps the animal had an overriding case of parasites and um, literally they, they essentially starved to death. Um, or that there was a disease that was a bacterial or a viral disease. Um, and that pathology report can really help make the determination. Great. I think Sean wanted to touch base on something you were just saying. Uh, well, I, I was going to mention that um, certainly in cases where the animal appears to have exsanguinated, i.e. bled to death, um, sometimes the shape of the wound can be very diagnostic. So yeah. a, a propeller leaves a particular kind of scar. Um, it turns out a great white shark leaves a particular kind of bite. <laughs> we had a harbor porpoise a couple of uh, years ago that died from lacking a, a second half to the body. Uh, and you could you could almost see, you know, the individual scissor-like cut as the shark had cut through the animal. And when we showed this to another lab who specialized in the shark, they, they said, yeah, that looks like a great white. So um, the, the, the wounds can be often quite diagnostic in themselves. And, and uh, I also want to mention that Carissa is being very, very humble uh, in that the necropsy process is um, extraordinary and disgusting and fascinating <laughs> all at the same time. And yes, you know, it really works well when we've got a freshly dead animal. But more often not, because our coastline is so remote, we often find animals that have been dead a week plus. And, um, you know, the animal's rotting from the minute that it dies, um, especially inside that blubber jacket, which keeps it nice and warm. So, um, yeah, people stand back when that first cut is made. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Carissa, before we let you go, um, uh, paint a picture a little bit for us about what it's meant to you to be part of this program. It's extraordinarily important to me. Um, it's, it's really been a rewarding experience, um, and it is something that I really treasure doing. Um, it allows me to feel like I give back a little bit to the coastline, um, and yes, a lot of this is just a natural process, um, and that's important to recognize. But to be able to come in and to actually be close to these animals and hopefully make, even if it's a small difference in some way, um, is really very rewarding and it's to me it's just very special to be able to take the training that I've had for my career and to extend that into uh, into something else and so that it's been wonderful and the, the people that you meet are fantastic um, I can't stress enough um, what a wonderful group of people that they have up at College of the Atlantic they've been really fantastic um, they are very welcoming to anyone who wants to participate and volunteer and that's just been really great that's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I know that you have a day full of taking care of your local dogs and cats and iguanas. Um, so just wanted to say thanks, and thanks for all the work you do. Thank you very much.
And I wanted to remind listeners that you're listening to WERU Community Radio at 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. And um, in a little bit, we're going to open up the phone lines. But before we do that, um, I wanted to invite Grace Shears to join us on the call. She is a student at the College of the Atlantic. And I have a feeling that Grace might be able to tell us some stories about the gruesome act of being involved in a necropsy. Um, Grace, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Grace. So you're a student at College of the Atlantic, and you are involved with Allied Whale. What's been your role? My role has been mainly um, responding to dead marine mammal retrieval and necropsy. Did you say dead Um, marine mammal retrieval? Yes. You did. Okay. (laughs) She's really good at it. I have been involved in only two live marine mammal training responses. So it's mainly been necropsies. Okay. And um, what inspired you to join the team and and be involved in this kind of work during your career as a student? Well, I've known for a very long time that I've wanted to work with marine mammals, specifically whales. And when I came to College of the Atlantic, one of the main things that drew me towards the college was Allied Whale. And when I came there, they gave me this little paper that I had to fill out which work study I wanted. And Allied Whale wasn't on there, but I wrote it down just to see if maybe they would let me join, and they did. So I've been on since I was uh, first year, which uh, last September. Great. Um, I, you sound a little bit far away, so if you could try to talk a little bit louder, that would be helpful. Tell us a little bit about the experience of coming upon a, a marine mammal that is not alive and knowing that part of your job is figuring out why it died. Well, I think it's really interesting. Um, being involved with these dead marine mammals has been a great learning experience for me. Because I, like I said, I'm studying whales, so the cetacean necropsies has been a real, a really great learning experience for me. Um, you know, you read a lot about the anatomy and how things are supposed to work, but I think it's been really helpful for me to have it, you know, right in front of you, and you can see exactly how it's supposed to work. And as for Figuring out why it died, I thought that was kind of a daunting task, my first necropsy. But um, it turns out that we don't usually find the cause of death when we do these necropsies, which I find a little bit frustrating. But, again, it's also just great to learn, well, this looks normal, and, well, this doesn't look normal, and why doesn't it look normal, and well, how could that have um, how could that have contributed to the animal's death and so on, things like that. It it sounds pretty amazing um, and unique. I mean, I believe that you're a college age student and you're engaged yeah. in some work that I would venture to say usually students don't get to do till they're a PhD level kind of student. Um, and I think Rosie was going to say something too. Um, I just want to mention that uh, uh, when Grace was out on Mount Desert Rock, that's our offshore field station. Um, Which is like 23 miles 25 out to sea, 25 miles, yeah, most easterly offshore Pretty field remote. station. Yeah, lighthouse off um, Maine. And uh, Grace, um, they found, uh, be- because there is a colony of harbors and grays um, on Mount Desert Rock um, and includes numerous pups, um, they came across one that had died and uh, uh, Grace did the necropsy right there, and, and Grace, you did find a cause of death thanks to Carissa looking at uh, photos and, and getting your uh, very good notes later on. So, okay, so I, the picture I'm seeing in my head is a group of college students out on Mount Desert Rock, 23, 25 miles out to sea. You come upon a dead seal, and you just pull out your special tools that you happen to have with you, and you start digging in and figure it out. Well, how it went, um, Sean had visited the week before, and he gave me a small kit that had some scalpels and a pair of scissors. 
And it wasn't what we usually have um, when we do necropsies at the college. I, I should tell but, the audience that Sean is cracking up thinking, nope, that's not how we usually so, do it. So, so this is a dissection <laughs> kit that you usually work with on rats, you know, the, the dead rat in the lab. And she's using it on a, like a four-foot seal. But we're adaptable. We're adaptable. That's great. Okay, so you've got your special rat kit. <laughs> yes. So we, um, out of at Rock, there were about six crew members, including myself, and there was also um, a class of high school students. They were with Greenlight Academy, and I believe most of them were from New York, but I could be wrong. They were high school age students. Connecticut, and a couple of them, what was that? Connecticut, I think. Oh, Connecticut. Okay, yeah. Um, a couple of them came running up to me and said, there's a dead seal, there's a dead seal. So I went and looked at it, and it was indeed dead. And um, Dan Dendanto was out there as well. Um, I don't know if he's And, and he is also yet. a researcher with Allied Whale. Yes, yeah. And so he told me, go ahead and do a necropsy. So I did. <laughs> and um, I had the help of one of the other crew members but she had never done a necropsy before, so Dan kind of put me on the spot and said, you know, teach these kids about how the seal works, and maybe you can tell them why it died. And I was a little bit like, well, I don't know if we'll be able to tell how it died, but as soon as we cut in, uh, you could tell that it had peritonitis, and that's an infection of the peritoneum with um, abdominal cavity that is a frequent infection that young seals get because their umbilicus region doesn't heal properly after their umbilical cord falls off. So that was really cool. I was really glad that I was kind of able to give them a tentative diagnosis. Then Carissa later on saw the photos, and she was able to confirm that diagnosis. Wow, that's fantastic. Congratulations for just jumping in and figuring that out. That's really cool. Thank you. And I just want to add that when we do necropsies, the reason Grace was able to do that is that we do teach them proper um, etiquette around the seals and in, in, in handling them graciously, carefully, yeah. uh, with respect, um, also in handling the instruments. Um, the surgical blades are sharp. Um, we teach them how to put these blades on and off, how to handle all the different surgical instruments uh, properly. And uh, as Carissa would say, wear gloves, wear gloves, wear gloves. We always wear <laughs> gloves in handling marine mammals um, yep. and wear coveralls and so on. So it's, it's, we really take that very seriously, the safety uh, aspect. So, Grace, before we let you go, um, imagine that there are some high school students out there listening to this show who are thinking that your experience as a college student is something that they would like to do. What would you recommend for them? What would you say to a group of high school students who are sort of inspired by your story? Well, I would, I would encourage them to jump right in. If any, if any high school students wanted to come to COA, and maybe wanted to work with our idea or even any other aspect of the college, the goal is to just jump right in and get involved with anything that you're passionate about, and it'll be rewarding. It's, this school is very amazing, and we have some incredible opportunities, and you just have to seize the opportunities when they come your way. That's great. Thank you so much, Grace, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Yeah, Sean, go ahead. So, so, so Grace is just is 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 awesome, and there's there's only one Grace. But you know, we we have we have many many students like that uh, at the college, uh, and in Allied Whale. It's um, it, something that I've really enjoyed adapting to myself to as a faculty member is trying to you know shift from a stand and deliver type curriculum where you stand in front of a classroom and you say this is what's going to be the test to more of a okay, we're going to talk about this today and let's actually do it. And so students really do get involved. So the, the necropsy experience that Rosie just described is actually quite common. You know, we, we get five or six students around a carcass and we, we get them cutting. And, and it, because it's supervised by us, we're still doing the science, uh, but they're learning the skills. Great. Thanks. And thanks again, Grace. Um, have a great day. Uh, Thank you so much. 
Great. Thank you. Um, So just to remind listeners, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU at 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. Our topic today is marine mammal strandings on the coast of Maine. Our guests are folks from Allied Whale at College of the Atlantic. And um, we have some time for some phone calls. Um, If anyone out there has had your own experience coming upon a stranded seal or whale. For example, I know that um, there was a stranded whale off the Cranberry Islands on Christmas Day, if anyone saw that, or any other stories that you might want to share about finding marine mammals on the shore, or if you have special questions for these guys about what to do or not to do, I invite you to call in. The number is one 625 9378 That's one 625 weru um, I have a question that's a little bit out in, well, actually, I have a f- first question. So we've heard from a consulting vet and we've heard from a student volunteer um, or a student uh, who's been engaged in some of this work as b- part of her college curriculum. What about the general public? Is the, Can the general public connect with you guys and become volunteers? Can our listeners um, get involved? Absolutely. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, when... Um, we get calls from individuals uh, who have spotted a seal. Um, often they become interested in, in the animals themselves, especially if they have a seal that hangs around for a few days. It's, it's a bright, alert, uh, responsive animal, but it's decided uh, to rest in uh, their stretch of beach for a little bit and uh, becomes their little friend, and they end up learning about that animal and become more interested and um, more than welcome to become volunteers. Um, We do training workshops twice a year. We just, uh, well, it took us about four tries to have the winter one because of all the snow. We postponed three times. Um, but we had the winter workshop addressing the what we call the ice seals, the harps and hoodeds that Sean mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, we have our spring workshop. That will be upcoming. We don't have a date set yet, but hopefully we don't have to postpone that one three times. Um, hopefully the snow will melt. Um, and uh, that should be coming up in, in May, but they can feel free to, to give me a call. And Great, Allied thank well. you. Yep. And what's the number at Allied Whale? Uh, it is uh, 288-5644. Great. Um, I think we have a call from Frank in Marlboro. Frank, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Great. Thanks. What, what... Uh, I'd like to make a little announcement, and hopefully we get some participation from the allied whale folks and other environmental groups along the coast of Maine. Great. We, we are tentatively doing a walk. The dates, we're going to do the walk, but the tentative dates are October 7th to October 27th starting in Ellsworth, going to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Hmm. And the title of, and this all ties in to the ocean. The title of the walk this year, we do walks the last several years, either from, we've gone from Rangeley to Berwick, about missile sites in northern Maine and Rangeley, anti-drone stuff. And this, this year, the title of the walk is The Militarization of the Seas and the Pentagon's Impact on the Ocean who are the biggest polluters of the oceans. And, and so I'm hoping Allied Whale and other folks who are concerned about mammals will Great. Help, jo- help join in on this walk. We start in Ellsworth, I think, on the 7th. And, you know, this, we have some Buddhist monks that come from around the world and beat their drums and walk with us. And uh, so it's the impact on the ocean the that the, the uh, focus of the uh, walk this this coming fall great and and there'll be there'll be contact information on the computer and phone numbers you know coming up it's just in the plan in it's in the tentative planning stages but the walk will be next fall great and thank you gonna, so we're, much we're gonna have a gathering at the EU church on October 6th great thank you so much Frank and I think that Sean was gonna mentioned something about but thank you frank for the for the information about your upcoming event and thanks for your call it's, it's really great to get some visibility out there about about various groups that use the ocean uh, obviously it's it's everyone's ocean uh, it's not owned by the government it is our ocean and uh, you know currently the government is charged with looking after it but we all play a role in being stewards for that ocean 
Um, it's, it's not my phrase, but I like it, so I'm going to use it. Um, we've often referred to the urbanization of the ocean. You know, we're, we're using it much more often. We're extracting things from it. We're putting ships on there. Um, we're, we're playing loud noises into the ocean to look for oil. And all of these things have a potential impact on wildlife, not just marine mammals. And it's really important to monitor those things. And uh, certainly we, we are, we are play, playing a role in that process of monitoring. Great. Thanks, Sean. I think we have another call. We have Rich from Bar Harbor. Hi, Rich. Are you on the line? I'm right here. How are you? Great. Do you have a question or a comment? Yeah, a little bit of both. I, I've been enjoying the show. And um, I, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned the allied whale and the catalog that they keep, the humpback whale and fin whale catalogs. And I guess I was just curious, uh, what's the best way to share photos? and what, what kind of photos do they want? Or do they want photos of of observations to help with their catalogs. Great, thanks for that question. Rosie, I know you're you're knee deep in some of these catalogs. Yeah, I can't help but I share the office with Tom who, who uh, helps manage the uh, humpback catalogs. Um, absolutely, uh, we receive uh, photos and, and boy, in the old days it was, it was an actual photograph. Now, of course, we get them sent via email or uh, shared in the Dropbox and so on. But if you have uh, photos of humpback whales that you've taken for the North Atlantic, because we look after the North Atlantic Ocean, or in Antarctica in the Southern Hemisphere, we have the, both those two catalogs in Allied Whale. Um, and you can send those. Um, if you go online to the College of the Atlantic's website, uh, you'll find Allied Whale under facilities, I think, Sean. Mm -hmm. And um, um, you can uh, get the Allied Whale uh, email address and, and send and us photos. My understanding, and, and thank you so much for your call, Rich. Thanks. Thanks. Um, my understanding is that the the catalogs um, utilize photo identification to help determine one whale individual um, from another, which helps um, incredibly with research about all kinds of whale-related things, from migration to population status, and that it the the system was was developed by Allied Whale researchers. Is that right? That's right. It's it's um it's a very benign method of being able to track an animal. Uh, you know, when an animal has you, you, these unique markings, it's very much like a tag because every time you see that animal with that marking, you know, oh, it's that individual. And so we have developed all kinds of really interesting knowledge on basic life history parameters which are essential for management of the species. Uh, and uh, for the, in the case of the humpback whale, it's the back of the tail. When it lifts its tail, there, there's, there's that footprint, uh, sorry, the fingerprint. Uh, in a fin whale, it's the back of the animal. Um, so actually, what's really useful is, is when you do submit those photos. So Rich, if you're listening, still listening, if you take that photo, make sure you have a date associated with that photograph. And also, increasingly now, um, a lat long. If you know, even some, some of these cameras can embed lat longs into the metadata of the photo. And that could be very important, too, because that, you know, that we have a, a clear location associated with that particular photograph. Great. <clears throat> Um, so here's my question from out in left field. We haven't talked about this at all, but we talked about the ice seals a little bit earlier um, and how the ice seals are dependent on ice for um, pupping. So what about changes in the status of the ice in the northern climate? Uh, well, um, that is a very, very tough question. I know. Uh, there probably aren't answers, but there aren't answers I'm sure because, you're thinking about it. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. There have been some interesting papers out there that have related changes in ice field density in the north, in, in, in Canada, and, uh, so Quebec and Newfoundland patches of ice, uh, to how many seals we see down here. So, you know, if the, you know, if the ice is not good where they are, they sometimes come down here looking for ice. And, and again, I want to stress the harp seal population is doing very, very well. Um, you know, in fact, in, in, when I used to work in Newfoundland, what, when Rosie and I were in Newfoundland, we often had to deal with perceptions of harp seals as pests uh, because they are so numerous. And uh, fishermen believed that they were impacting the local uh, cod fishing populations. Um, so it's... Um, Failure of ice will definitely have a, an effect on these animals. They are ice-dependent. They need to haul out to, uh, to, to give birth. Uh, and I think part of the expansion that we're seeing of the population this way is because it's a population that's doing really, really well. And so you know, we're seeing this general range expansion going on. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, having been down here now for 15 years myself and up in Newfoundland before that, that... 
The sightings vary from year to year. Some years are amazing sighting years, other years are very poor sighting years, and that all has to do with whatever the ocean is giving them that particular year. Sometimes it's a good year for food, sometimes it's a poor year for food, sometimes it's a good year for habitat, sometimes it's a poor year for habitat. It's very variable. And that's actually going to be the challenge, coming back to your original question. That's the challenge. There is so much variability. You know, we, we don't know what we're looking at. And uh, with spring around the corner, so the, uh, the, the, the warmer temperatures around the bend, um, what, what can we expect to see this summer? What, what might people see when they're roaming the shores, offshore islands and that sort of thing? Well, if you're roaming the shores uh, in May, um, that's when the harbor seal pups are um, popping. Um, or that the, the adult harbor seals are pupping. Uh, you might uh, come across, or your dog might come across, a single and lonely, seemingly lonely harbor seal pup on the beach. Um, harbor seal pups are incredibly endearing. Uh, they also tend to vocalize. People say they're crying. They, they make that plaintive call. It sounds like it's saying ma. Um, it is vocalizing, and for a harbor seal uh, adult, the mothers actually go off, and this may sound heartless, but they will leave the pup and go off for even hours at a time to go feed. Um, this is normal. Uh, that seal pup will just wait on the beach for mom to come back. Um, and in fact, I know it was a colleague of Sean's and mine from Newfoundland who did some work on harbor seals and found it's, uh, their vocalizations are unique to that, uh, that pup to that mother, so she knows her pup from its, from its vocalization. Um, so um, while they're incredibly endearing, you've really got to give them their space, leave them alone. Uh, Mom will not come back if there's a, a crowd of people around that pup. She will leave it. And if that pup is truly abandoned, that becomes my department. Uh, it becomes a stranding. So once again, with seals, we, we talked about whale stranding, and that was obvious. Seals, it's a real gray area because they're semi-aquatic, and uh, they do need to haul out or get out of the water for long periods of time, whether they're just resting. Um, and for the females pupping, they need to be on land and also when they're doing something called molting. So, so just to go along with that, um, the public may be surprised that one of the first things we do when we get a sighting, we go check it out, but then we leave it. We, we leave it for at least 24 to 48 hours, uh, monitor it all the, all, the, all the time, but just to make sure that we've given enough time for mum to come back. Great. And um, I just wanted to remind folks of the Strandings hotline in case you see something out there. And as Rosie said, uh, feel free to call, even if you think it's not an issue, just because it's good information for the researchers to collect. The hotline number is 1-800-532-9551. And I think we have about half a minute left for final comments. Just wanted to say with the seal pups, because that is really key right now as we get, we will be getting into spring months. And um, if you do have a seal pup, once again, leave it alone. Uh, but I've also had people wanting to put them in the water or pour water on them. Uh, seals do not need to be in the water and seals do not need to be wet. I think people have seen shows where they're pouring water on whales. Whales are very different from seals. So uh, refrain from doing that. Oh, we appreciate the thought, but it, it doesn't help them. It actually really stresses them out. So just give us a call and, hey, we may rein you in to be a volunteer. And uh, we certainly appreciate all your calls. That sounds great. And uh, the number for Allied Whale, not the hotline, but if people want to become involved, let's hear that once more. Uh, 288-5644. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much um, to our guests in the studio um, and to our guests on the line. Um, we've come to that time when it's the end of our program. This has been Coastal Conversation. Our conversation today has been about seal and whale strandings in Maine. And I wanted to thank our guests for their time and good work. Um, thanks for joining us in the studio. Sean Todd, who is the director of Allied Whale at College of the Atlantic, as well as the Steve Katona Chair in Marine Research. Did I get that right? Um, and Rosie Seaton, who is the Marine Mammal Stranding Coordinator at Allied Whale at College of the Atlantic, as well as a researcher. And on the phone, we had Dr. Carissa Balamowitz, who is a veterinarian with Harbor Road Veterinary in South Thomaston and is a consulting scientist or a consulting vet for Allied Whale. And we had Grace Shears, who is a superstar student at College of the Atlantic and who is actively involved in marine mammal strandings with a specialty in figuring out what caused death for marine mammals that you find on the shore. 
pretty incredible for a college student. Um, thanks also to those who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. On the second Friday of each month, you can still catch Talk of the Towns, the long-standing WERU public affairs program that inspired Coastal Conversations. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to John Greenman for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Natalie Springle, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport, which opens for the season on May 23rd with Exploring the Magic of Photography, an exhibit from the museum's collection of 19th and early 20th century photographs. More information at penobscotmarinemuseum.org. Think of your own journey. What combination of gumption and family and community support allowed you to further your life? in the transition from high school, whether directly to the world of work or through higher education to the work you now call your own. Chances are it wasn't easy for you, and it certainly isn't easy for most of today's students. In the communities of Deer Island Stonington, they're taking no chances. A suite of interconnected programs is making that transition a bit easier. This is Ron Beard for University of Maine Cooperative Extension and host of Talk of the Towns. On our next program, our guests Kim Hutchinson, the coordinator of Project Launch, and Todd West, principal of Deer Isle Stonington High School, share how their community and the school 